0: Welcome to the HeartStrong Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Lindberg. Like many of you, I'm living a life that I just did not expect. And over the years, I've come to value the idea of living heartstrong, of growing through the challenges in my life, and let's face it, the challenges in our times. And I'm on a mission to help you do the same. So each week, I talk to thought leaders, authors, experts, and everyday amazing people who have something to teach us all about living fully amidst our struggles. I have learned so much from others along my journey, and so I hope that my guests will help you on yours. Let's get started. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Christina Vanderplume. Dr. Vanderplume is a pediatric cardiologist at Boston Children's Hospital, and she has devoted her career to improving the lives of children with complex congenital heart disease and taking care of their families. She started her educational journey at the University of Alberta. She's a native of Canada. And she acts as the medical director for the ventricular assist device program, which we'll explain to you about in the the podcast. She's the director of the cardiac antithrombosis management program and the co-director of the stroke and cerebrovascular center. She has helped to establish a collaborative across hospitals in North America, Europe, and beyond called ACTION, and ACTION stands for Advanced Cardiac Therapies Improving Outcomes Network. And really, it has the goal of finding solutions for children with heart disease by um, looking at successes and failures in real time and to, so that they can make things better for um, future patients. But like I always say on the podcast, we are never just one thing. Um, so Christina is not only a full-time clinician, but she is a researcher, a thinker, a problem solver. A mother, a wife, a friend, a daughter, and as she says, a doer. So, welcome to the podcast, Christina. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I, um, I just want to say to the audience that I have had the privilege of. Knowing Christina in real life, but also being a brief patient family of hers. So I have Mm -hmm. experienced, um, you know, working with her in a medical setting, but then also knowing how much um, so many of your other patients love you. So it's really neat to have both perspectives. So I just wanted to start out the podcast by talking about what you do as a pediatric cardiologist and like how you got to do what you do. Yeah. So my days
1: aren't probably the traditional pediatric cardiologist. Um, And, and I mean that because I wear a, a few different hats and that was of my own choosing. I think I could have taken a very, you know, quote unquote, traditional pathway where I would primarily see kids with heart dysfunction, where the the squeeze of their heart isn't normal, and as a result, they might need medicine, they might need heart transplant, they might need mechanical circulatory support or, or what we were talking about before, these ventricular assist devices, these little pumps that help circulate blood across their body. But early on in my career, I noticed that, you know, we train for for almost like a trade. You know, there's the cath doc, there's the surgeon, there's the cardiologist. But the patient doesn't come to us with a single problem. It's not like, you know, you have an electrical problem and you call an electrician the patient comes to us with so many other problems that are all interconnected. And so this idea that we treat it by, you know, call the electrician and call the plumber in and assume that we're going to get this intact house in the end is is kind of a misrepresentation of really what it all takes. So early on, I thought, why don't I learn about the problems that my patients face? So you know, the heart failure patients, some of them would get worse, and they would need something more. So I spent a lot of time thinking, well, what is that something more? And at the time where I was training, Edmonton, Alberta was one of the initial sites in North America to get vads or these these miniature pumps that could help support kids. And we were the training center, actually, for all the other centers in North America. So back when I was just a resident, we would go to Texas and to Boston Children's and to all these places and start training people on how to use these pumps. But we noticed that for the kids who were treated on these pumps, close to 30% of them were having strokes or other really significant oh. complications. And, you know, one mom described it to me of, it's like you're telling me to attach a landmine or a bomb mm. to my child. And I know, you know, we have to walk this pathway, but that's what it feels like each day. And and that's what it felt like to me too. It, it was, it was, Crushing for me when a patient would have a stroke. And I thought many times, I can't, you know, I can't start my career like this and I'm going to end it very, very quickly if every day it feels like somebody's having something catastrophic and that I may have played a part in that. Um, So I started to learn a lot about anticoagulation and how do kids clot and bleed and why does that happen? And you realize that there's so much that we know and so much that we don't know but that we're not really applying all of those facets to our day-to-day managing of patients. So that's how I kind of got into the foray of seeing patients with bleeding and clotting problems and applying what I'd learned in that to cardiac patients as a whole. And as it stands right now, um, you know, I see patients who have had COVID, who have had mis who are some of the most complex kids in the hospital with clotting and bleeding disorders or who have had strokes. And so that's kind of like how my journey of you know, going in to be a heart transplant, heart failure cardiologist has like opened the doors for all of these other possible roles, mainly because I chose to walk through them rather than just say, you know what, this is what I do from, you know, these are my the hours of the day and, and I'm going to kind of stop at that.
0: So you really wanted to look at the whole patient, it sounds like. Like you saw through lines between these different challenges that your patients were having. You're like, maybe there's something over here that can help over here. Exactly. And, and you know, my
1: goal for the future is that the way we train medicine or train healthcare providers would not be that you go into – quote unquote, a trade, you know, you don't, you don't train to be just a cardiovascular surgeon, but that you go in to address a problem and look at all the facets that that problem has impact in their physical, um, you know, day to day life the impact for the future um, in terms of the progression of the disease, but also the emotional impact, the psychological impact, because, you know, every disease state impacts that differently. If you have a stroke or if you have a neurological disability, uh, you know, you wear that potentially on the outside versus if, you know, you had a heart transplant or you had some other heart surgery it's all in the inside but you live with debilitating anxiety and depression you live with that on the inside and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's any less um, and if anything it could be more but we have to address it in the same type of fashion um, and with a, with a kind of a different approach than just saying i'm going to treat your heart disease And ideally, you would have a comprehensive group that would go to the patient rather than the patient having to go to all of these patients, Mm -hmm. all of these different providers to get that level of care.
0: Do you think or do you sense that there's an appetite for that way of treating patients in medicine now or do you think that's emerging
1: I think it's emerging. I think people realize that it's it's an antiquated system to just have patients go from one provider to another to another in hopes of kind of rounding out all of their care. And I think it's it it results in disproportionate and unequitable care across individuals who might be more savvy, who might be more educated, who might have the the skills, the language, all of these other aspects um, to be able to seek out all of these different providers, rather than, you know, having to just go to, you know, a cardiologist, they tell you you have a problem, and then you're just living with the consequences of all of that. I think the hospital as a whole, it's its harder for them to structure that. And, sure. you know, when you think of uh, from the patient facing side, you know, a parent has to call the AA uh, for gastroenterology, for neurology, and have to coordinate all and beg these people to get visits and appointments and all of these mm-hmm. days. So this, the, the infrastructure of the hospital isn't really set up for that yet. But I think that's what you know, we have to push as as providers and that parents have to vocalize that they think that this is in the best interest of their child and that it works more seamlessly for the care of them um, and also of their child. And I think with that push, you know, hospital administrators and others will start to flex in the ways that are necessary and that we know is possible because it happened in COVID. You know, we were able to pivot to telemedicine and to pivot cares in ways that were more conducive to kind of a family-centric approach.
0: Yeah. And as a parent, you know, I think that one thing begets the other, right? So if you have a for example, you know, many children with congenital heart disease also have feeding issues or have GI issues. That's just one example, right? So if we can kind of look more holistically at at patients, that's how we experience them as parents. When we are at home, we're like in the kitchen with all the, you know, with the GI problems and the heart problems and the, you know, developmental issues. We're looking at it as a soup, if you will, yeah. right? It's not just one ingredient. And so that's so interesting that you say looking at patients like that. I think that's, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's super important. And I'm wondering um, how much being a mom plays a role in the way you think about, because you're a mother um, also, and so that's got to play a role in the way that you think medicine should be operating. Yeah.
1: A hundred percent. And you know, when I went through medical school um, and through pediatrics, you know, you were taught all these like American Pediatric Society recommends that you feed your kid, you know, this much, and you let them sleep in this way, and you do all of these things. And then I became a mom um, (laughs) in the middle of my residency as a a cardiologist, and I realized that all of those rules needed to be thrown out the window because the expectations set were way too high, and, and it actually didn't make any physiologic reason for a lot of these rules that were kind of established and that I think we ingrain into parents early on so that there's this feeling of like shame if you're not doing it just right. Um, And so very early on, I realized that the things that we were telling parents to do and then asking them to do for us in terms of, you know, the number of medicines, the way it's being administered, if they missed a dose, if they didn't remember the dose, all of these things made It it wasn't a feasible plan. And so I think to myself, you know, if I need to get my three-year-old to take a med, I'm like hiding it in a peanut butter and jelly (laughs) sandwich. And then like, you know, doing a big parade around the house to get her to take it. And I think, how are we getting parents to take like six to eight meds three times a day? And then when they miss a med or things aren't perfect, we start saying, oh, you know, there's compliance issues, there's adherence issues. And so quickly we almost start shaming parents into not being as perfect as they can be. And so with all of that said, I realized that this is not, this isn't, the expectations are way too high. And the way that we're approaching the care is not really always generating the therapeutic relationship that we want so that parents aren't completely honest um, with how they're actually doing things at home. And then that doesn't allow us the ability to actually provide the care or make the clinical decisions that is going to best benefit. And so we had to kind of just step back. And I always tell parents, you know, I'm going to approach your child as a mother first, and a mother who has the knowledge and of, uh, of a doctor. But I am not going to prescribe something if I wouldn't necessarily be able to administer it or if I wouldn't give it to my own child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think having that mindset makes you appreciate how much harder it is for the parents on the parent-facing side.
0: Yeah, that is so true because, you know... Complex illness of a child, it impacts the entire family. It's not happening in a vacuum. It's happening amidst parents' careers, jobs, the laundry, you know, other siblings and things that they have going on. And I do think that oftentimes as parents, it's so overwhelming because you want to do such a good job and you realize the importance and the responsibility that you have to care for your complexly ill child. And yet, and I've learned this later in life, you also want to have a life and you also want to provide some normalcy to your other children. And you want to, you know, do things you have to take care of yourself, which again, I also learned that later in life. And, and so this approach, I think, is so important because it's sustainable. I mean, I think a lot of times the things that we ask of families, especially in the complex illness community, and I'm going to extend that out even with probably adults who are, who are ill mm-hmm. and people who are dealing with, you know, caring for older parents. I mean, you can really extend this beyond anyone who's dealing with a complex medical issue. It's not sustainable. And so I think that's such an amazing and important point about how we need to shift care.
1: Yeah. And I think we have to train the next generation of providers to think in that fashion as well. You know, there, there is ways that, you know, we've, developed medicine and made recommendations based on evidence-based trials and you know we consider that to be the gold standard of care but the reality is is that life is not a clinical trial life is not a randomized <laughs> trial where you're getting endpoints at all of these specific times and that all patients are being treated the exact same way and the reason for that is because it's impossible to do that. There's too many outliers. There's too many variables. Um, just like you said, you know, the siblings in the room. How how that all factors into it, and how little as a provider we actually ask about those additional factors mm-hmm. that could be dramatically impacting um, medicine administration. You know, exercise tolerance for the patient. All of these other things that we take into account when we're making clinical decisions. Um, And I think so much of that needs to change in the mentality of how we're providing care. But the way that we still educate providers, this way that we still train, um, you know, fellows and residents coming up and the the way that we still practice medicine as though you're coming to cardiology clinic or neurology clinic is still in the fashion of we're going to impose our recommendations. This is what we recommend and we want you to do it as best you can. Um, But really, if you start to fall or in any way, shape or form, we're not really providing a lot of alternative solutions to help support you. Mm -hmm. Which is why in an ideal world, you know, you would have social workers, you'd have child life, you would have all of these additional psych supports in all of the clinics, regardless of whether you were coming in for something major or something minor, because Mm -hmm. the reality is, is any visit to any doctor's office is stressful on the family, no matter, you know, how severe it is. And sometimes the parents who are most stressed out are those who are coming in with the most minor, you know, non-life-threatening conditions and the most stressful. And the least stressed parents, because it's probably a way that they've found to cope with it, to just kind of go with the flow, are those in whom the children have the most life-threatening conditions.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that that's really true. I, I wonder, so you, when you take care of the patients that you take care of, I mean, you have long-term relationships with them. I mean, many of them are in the hospital for a long time, or like some children are waiting for heart transplantation, or they're just very sick and I'm wondering how you handle that, you know, how you, I know there have to be professional boundaries and yet you're a person and, and a very empathetic, compassionate woman. How do you handle that? How do you, um, hold that tension in your job? Yeah. So I am probably
1: not a very good example
0: of boundaries.
1: <laughs> um, and maybe that's my coping mechanism, but early on, um, and I think it actually comes from my own mother. She was, a, a a middle school science teacher. And she would get so involved in the lives of all of her family, of all of her of her her students. And she would tell her students about, you know, what we were doing in our lives. And so there was no like wall between her as a teacher teaching students and her students lives in our lives. And we would know about her students and they would know about ours. And so when I started medicine, I kind of had the same approach. You know, I would tell my patients about my kids so that they knew that, I was coming at it from a mother's perspective. And I would want to hear not just about the patient, but about the sibling, about, you know, what was happening in their lives, whether it was big or small, you know, because all of that is what they're interfacing with. And I would make sure that the parents knew that because of you know, what I deal with on a day-to-day basis, who, what I do being, you know, I'm mainly taking care of the sickest of the sick kids mm-hmm. and asking them to trust me with some of the highest stake decisions that I wanted to shoulder some of, some of, or of all of that burden for them. And I never wanted them to think that they were making this decision alone. And so mm-hmm. as part of that, I wanted to show that I was at all times available to them, um, even if it was like a two in the morning call. And as a mom myself, usually my list of worries started around two to four in the morning (laughs) when, you know, you wake up for that first time and then you start thinking like, oh, did I do that right? Should I do this? You know, Oliver needs to be in more activities. His brother's in more. (laughs) He's not doing enough. And then I start going through all the lists of my of my other kids, my non-biological kids and thinking, you know, how are they doing? What's happened to them? I should reach out to that mom. And, and I think if I'm having these thoughts and, on a day-to-day basis, I don't really have major worries. What are the parents thinking about at two in the morning? Mm -hmm. So I tell all my patients that if at two in the morning, you're thinking about something of your child and you need an answer, just text me. So I get a lot of texts at random hours, um, but to me, that's okay. And the reason is, is, you know, I've been able to get back to bed really quickly, um, but also because I feel like I might not be able to cure their child and I might not be able to fix whatever problem they have, but I want them to know that I'm as in it as they are. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether it's a success, whatever we deem to be a success, or whether it doesn't work out the way that we had hoped, I want them to know that I was always there with them, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so one would argue that's not adequate boundaries, but to me, that's my coping mechanism because then I know that I've, I've given them as much as I could of of me to help, even when I didn't necessarily have the answer or the solution to make it
0: all better again. Hmm. That's beautiful. I, I don't think a lot of doctors are like you. I think that that's <laughs> exceptional as a parent. And you, you carry a lot with you because you're willing to do that. And that's very... Brave, I think, and and very compassionate. You know, one of the things that I always have admired about you as a physician is that I think you know. I remember sitting with a in in a room with you with my husband Eric when Ethan was very sick, and and in reflection of that conversation, I felt like you were very honest um, and very compassionate at the same time, and you were actively like you could almost see your brain clicking away at, a, you know, trying to find some kind of a solution that maybe hadn't been thought of before. How hard is it in medicine to hold the tension of compassion and honesty? Because in medicine, you know, um, we think that success is physical healing. You know, the child is running around and all problems are gone. And I oftentimes, and I will just say it, I think hospital systems consider that a success. Mm-hmm. If you look at outcomes data, what is considered a good outcome. Um, and yet, you know, parents have to live with their whole life, sometimes without their child being physically present and alive. And so that honesty component is, I think, I can tell you as a parent, very important. Like, how do you hold that tension? Because that that's really hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think it's it's probably one of the hardest things that you can teach um, of how to you know we in in medical training we say how to break bad news, mm-hmm. um, but. It's not like it's a one time occurrence, like you do it and then you walk out and you're like, well, that's that's done. We never have to discuss that again. And in those cases, it's probably where the communication is already so broken apart that the person who's delivering it thinks that it's a one time event and that everything is cleared up. Um, But I, I try to speak in in the same way that I would hope that someone would speak to me. And, and I'm constantly thinking of how would I be able to cope in this situation. And in most most of the times, like when I would see you with everything that you went through with Ethan and so many other parents, I think there is absolutely no way I'd be able to get up in the morning. I wouldn't be able to walk through these doors. I wouldn't be able to function in any way, shape, or form. And you realize that. There's an immense amount of strength that is somewhere deep in your core that you don't realize you have until you really need it. And what parents will be able to kind of how they'll be able to harness that strength for their child Um, and the number of parents who have said, you know, I I will give my heart. I would give my life Mm -hmm. in place so that my child doesn't have to suffer. And and I realize that parents whose children are sick, they all know their child is sick. You know, we've done a lot of research to say, like, are parents aware of how dire the situation is? And I think there is extensive research to suggest that, you know, many times in the medical field, we don't inform our patients when something imminently bad is going to happen. Um, And the providers might know that sooner than the parents do. And so there is one camp that says we have to instill in our parents the realistic expectations of the next hour, 24 hours, 48 hours. And some parents need that. Um, And then other parents view that as we have completely stripped them of all hope. Mm. And I've noticed in some of these meetings, we go through every single bad thing that's going to happen. And, you know, just recently a mother then spoke of, well, then why are we doing any of this at all? And Mm. I said, well, because there's still that small chance that, you know, our X outcome might occur. And, and so now generally when I'm speaking with families, I hope that I'll have a a experience and know them beforehand, which is one of the reasons that I don't mind talking to them at two in the morning, because I get to know them and how they want to communicate and what worries them so that when the time comes that we have to start making hard decisions, I know kind of how they want to be communicated with. Do and, and through all that, you obviously want to present the facts as they are, but do they need a little bit more hope that day and, rather than a little bit more realism? Or do we, you know, put on a little bit more realism rather than hope? And I always tell them that if I absolutely thought there was no way forward to the outcome that they perceive to be what we where, where they would want to be, then I would tell them that. Um, I'm never going to provide a menu of items if we can do this, this, this or this. Um, And I always start the discussion of, I would not offer this to you if I would not do it to my own child. Hmm. And so that's why I also want them to know who I am as a person and how I parent, because not all of people's values align either so that they can appreciate, well, you know, she would go to the extremes in terms of invasive procedures, and I wouldn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So this is where I draw my line.
0: Hmm. I think that's a really interesting point about um you know different people's styles and what they need and I and I do think you know I have reflected a lot on because we can do something should we do something interventionally within a patient and you know I've read some different books by physicians who seem more reticent for their own intervention should they be sick versus maybe even what they would do for patients and I think that um you know, what I've learned is that there is this balance in life of acceptance of what you have and also holding hope for what potentially could be, but that that being really honest is, is really important. And I'm wondering how you define hope. Like when you are, I mean, I guess for you personally as, as a human, but then also in the work you do, like what does it look like to be hopeful? Mm
1: -hmm. To me, hope is like an essential element of being a human. It's it's you need it as much as you need air, water and food. And, you know, you can go maybe a few seconds um, without air. Um, You can go weeks without food and go a few days without water. And everybody has that same amount of of ability to go without hope. But fundamentally, you can't go out without hope for an indefinite period of time, because that's that's no way of actually living, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's what we see with people who commit suicide or who can't, you know, can't get up and can't participate in the world anymore, and and so providing hope, realistic hope. Um, is I think as integral as us making sure that the doses of the medicine that we deliver, that the investigations that we order, um, are appropriate. And, and there is this, this spectrum of hope that we have to, and we have to kind of determine, you know, are we providing false hope? And I think this is always Mm -hmm. the fear of when we're optimistic. And so many times, you know, I've sat in so many ICU meetings where, you know, the child is, has a breathing tube, has multiple, you know, drains, is connected up to a machine that's providing cardiorespiratory support. And we say, your child's doing well today. (laughs) And by all metrics, you're like, are you insane? How? In what way is this well? Or we're doing really good today. Um, And then the next day, you know, we know that, you know, the B-U-N and creatinine, it's jumped and they're not peeing as much. And we say, well, today's a bad day. And the parents, all they see is the same picture of horror from day to day. And they're having difficulties grasping how we define good versus bad. Hmm. And it's because what what anytime you're in the hospital is not not a good day and so what they're really what i hope i think that they're looking for is a sense from us of whether we're moving in the direction towards a goal that we need to kind of determine in advance and i think that's where you get this kind of therapeutic malalignment or where people say we're not on the same page because you know i'm thinking potentially that the goal is to get us to Um, you know, get the the breathing tube out and get to some sort of pathway that might allow us to get transplanted. And meanwhile, they're thinking in their heads that the goal is, well, maybe we'll get, you know, discharged in a few months, and -hmm. we'll be able to go right back to how it was before. Mm -hmm. And that is a lack of talking about the tough things in real time. Um, And that's where the honesty is so important, is that you don't have to break their spirits in saying that, you know what, your child is not going to leave the hospital without X, Y, and Z. You just need to be able to say it, but also say that, you know, what are what are your biggest fears and mm-hmm. how can I potentially address those fears so that we come to some kind of compromise in what we had hoped for for your child? Because um, it's never going to be, the same hopes that we each have and and trying to establish what that is. And sometimes the hopes are like, you know what, I hope that, you know, my child will be able to you know, open their eyes a little bit more tomorrow or be able to tolerate feeds tomorrow. And sometimes their hopes are actually very, very small, but we don't even address those so that they don't even know if it's getting better or worse. They're just kind Mm -hmm. of gauging how we're all acting around them. And to me, that must be terrifying when you're trying to read the room of individuals who are coming in and out for sometimes just a few minutes a day.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, because you're, as a parent, sometimes you're up and down based even on the facial expressions of your team. You're just trying to, like, read between the lines. Are they saying this? What do they really think? You know, those are the conversations that you have with yourself. And so, you know, you have a lot of, you know, I'm going to use, you know, binary terms, wins and losses, you know, (laughs) in your. and, And how do you hold those tensions, like? what do you learn from them? Like what, you know, what, what have you learned from, I mean, there's the highs of highs of kids who you never thought would make it out of the hospital that do, and those are amazing experiences that I'm sure keep you coming back the next day. And then there's those experiences where you can't get out of bed the next day because you just it just didn't, you thought it was gonna be different or you had mm-hmm. hoped that it would be different. Like what, what, what do those experiences teach you?
1: I think what it's taught me is we've put so much weight upon the destination and not mm. the journey.
0: Um, mm. And I know
1: that sounds so cliche, but the reality is, is given all that I've seen um, in the hospital and in my, my career to date, I realize that you really have to appreciate every single day, every single moment you have. And so, so much of our, our time when patients come into the hospital and, you know, we I care for a lot of patients who are here for long periods of time. And so, you know, they see the endpoint as when I'll get my heart transplant or when I'll get off Milrin Owen or when when something that's almost out of our control will happen and that that will somehow turn the trajectory of despair to joy. But the reality is, is it's not like a switch that all of a sudden you get your heart transplant and life from there on is perfection Um, or even that you get discharged and life from there is, you know, completely back to normal. If anything, sometimes life is harder once you leave the hospital, because now you're not just focused on your child and those problems, but you have the entire world that's circling around you, the siblings, your work, your spouse, um, and all of that was was going on um, as, as you were away. So I think through all of this, what I've tried to stress with the families and is, you know, did, did today have more joy than sorrow? Mm. Um and you know, the number one thing on rounds is, you know, we go through all the list of problems, but what today is gonna to spark joy? And mm. maybe that's like I've been watching too much of that Marie Kondo of does this spark <laughs> yeah. joy or not? But I thought to myself of like, well, why why don't we prioritize that? We go yeah. through our list of neuro cardiac, respiratory, and then we come up with the plan at the end. But I think to myself, well, did did any of this actually make any of the day better. And then sometimes our plan actually makes the day worse. We come up with decisions of, well, let's, you know, swab for VRE or C. diff. And then the patient's on isolation for an indeterminate amount of period of time. And we didn't think about how that decision impacts the patient's day. Mm-hmm. But when you actually think, well, what today is going to bring the patient joy, and you go through the list of decisions that you've made, and none of them do, well, then you need to at least readdress something in that day. And if that is a day where nothing has brought any joy, then in my head, I start tallying up those days. And that's Mm -hmm. what you discuss at the family meetings. That's where we talk about, well, you know, are we on the right trajectory? Because for the last nine days in a row, there's been nothing that we can really see sparked any joy in either the parent or the patient. And how do we have to change what we're doing because if that nine days turns into 90 days um, and then something bad at the very end happens, that's what impacts the entire journey. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think it, it, it either, and that's where it becomes a success or a failure. Um, but if those 90 days were filled with joy, as much joy as you can extract in being in the hospital, then it doesn't necessarily matter what happens on the last day. And if that last day is your discharge from hospital, great. But if the last day is that you're not discharged from the hospital, you can still look back at all of those other days and say, you know what, we had so many good days. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we put a lot of value on. It how long you lived for. You know, when you die when you're 92, we say, "Well, that was that was a successful life." That was life. a good life. That was say. a good life. Yeah. But then if you die when you're 7 or 4 or 2 months old, we say, "Well, that was that was so unfortunate. That should have never happened." But their life was just as successful you know and if we can if we can instill joy and happiness in those days and love it doesn't necessarily mean that just the quantity somehow denoted whether it was a success or a failure mm-hmm. and and that's to me the most important part and so that's how I've approached mothering of like you know what if I have a hundred years with my children or if I only have a hundred minutes, how can I extract as much joy out of this? And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm like happy-go-lucky at home all the time. There's lots of yelling and screaming and crying at all moments of the day. Um, but I look back at the day and I still say, you know what? I think we had a little bit more joy than sorrow today. So let's Take keep it on as going. A win. Yeah, let's, it's a win.
0: Yeah. You know, I have this um, quote. I don't know who said it, but it's on my uh, inside my kitchen, and it says, "It's not." Um, the years in your life, it's the life in your years. Yeah. And I think that I know that Ethan taught us that. And we look back, I mean, he used to hold concerts in his room and mm-hmm. he would be very sick, and yet he found joy in music. And um, I mean, just all kinds of... And we, we reflect on that a lot, I have to say. Eric and I both do. We'll just see something and we'll laugh. and Or even when we're in something, we're like... we He, he taught us that even in times where everyone else around you would be like, this is, this is like the worst that anybody could have to deal with. We were laughing. Like we were actually joking around. He was, I mean, you know, and, and I, I love that you said that it's what it brought joy today because we do live in a culture of the end game, right? <laughs> Even in anybody's career or when I get this house, this car, mm-hmm. this promotion, this whatever. And and even as much as we say we don't want to be like that, the reality is that we have live in a world that, that promotes that and pushes mm-hmm. that on us. And I think that's such a good reminder that all of these kids teach us is that today is a gift and we're here. Um, and what can we do today to bring joy? I love that. That's... I think that that is um, probably one of the greatest lessons that that I learned. So thank you for bringing for bringing that up. I'm wondering, you know, when you face these heartaches, I mean, it's it's hard for people to imagine um, what families go through. Frankly, in the walls of the hospital and the things that you see, um, I know that I had no idea that that whole world existed before I was in it, but. It makes you like ask questions about, you know, like what we believe in and what we value and what this all means. You know, I think that um, that's a question I ask. Like, you know, who's in charge and what's going on around here were yeah. the questions that I would have in my quiet moments. And I'm wondering, like. Does your work and the life that you live and the things that you do have there been questions that you're like, I really have to sort this out in my heart or my mind so that I can keep going?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think being in the hospital is like being in a war zone. And, it's the smells are different the sounds are different and you get used to it and you normalize things that you see and that you experience on a day-to-day basis but you know it's not normal because you Mm -hmm. can't ever tell somebody who hasn't lived it what you're doing that day like Mm -hmm. as a physician when I talk to you know the parents of kids in my school and you explain what you do um you just you just kind of say oh yeah I'm a doctor at children's but you can't explain that yeah I I just left the hospital and a child was nearly bleeding to death and mm-hmm. nothing good is going to come of this. And I'm going to have to go back in an hour and go talk to them and we're going to withdraw care or, or something mm-hmm. to that effect. And so with all of that, you know, early in my career, I thought this isn't fair. There, there can't mm-hmm. be a God, there can't be a higher power because it's too random and it's too unfortunate that good people are burdened with horrible lives. Um, And then over the years, I watched parents with amazing strength provide so much love and joy to their children while they're in the hospital. And then I would watch parents whose children are totally fine, stressing about life outside of the hospital, and not listening to their children because life is busy and yeah. um and you know I would go to my son's lacrosse practice and I would, you know, listen to the moms and the dads and they're worried about are they gonna go to Cabo that year and <laughs> Timmy's not doing well in this and are they gonna get into that school and so and so has an allergy and they have to do allergy testing and all of these things. And I'd be like, geez, you don't know <laughs> real problems. Um but then I also saw that they actually weren't happy. Hmm. Um even though their lives for all practical purposes was just fine, they didn't get to experience their child growing up cuz they were constantly worried about the next thing. And then I would see the parents in the hospital, some parents who made decisions to, you know, just stay in the hospital for an indefinite period of time to hope that their child would get well, like including you and including so many others. Um and they brought a magical sense of life to their their child. They would decorate the room, every day was them and their child just getting to live life. And I thought, you know, imagine if you stripped away your job and all of these other things and all you got to do was just focus on your child every day and have that that, that their child get one-on-one 100% of the time with their parent. Um, when I asked my son what does he want, he says I just want cuddles with you on the couch, and I'm like I can't cuddle 24 seven, but that's all he actually <laughs> wants. He wants yeah. And I tell like at the hospital he's come in and he sees the kids, he's like well they get to cuddle all the time. I said I know, <laughs> but that's different. But then I thought that's actually what kids want. They don't want to be going to lacrosse practice and this and that and the other. Mm-hmm. They just want their undivided parents' attention, and so you know with all of those experiences in the hospital and out i started to think that while it is horrific what our parents have to go through there is this this kind of silver lining to it that mm-hmm. you know what the children and what the parents actually get to experience is this focused you know bond that that some parents will never get to experience with their well child because they're so busy living life, but you've stripped away life and now it's just survival and you realize like what's really, really important. Um, And it's not all of those other things that we worry about on a day-to-day basis. And so for the people who have been able to get through that, you know, they all say that, yeah, I used to worry about if something very trivial would happen and now I don't worry about that at all it completely realigns how you see the world and what you worry about and what you don't worry about. And in in some ways it's it's liberating. And so whether there's a higher spirit or power or not, I think that we have to find a way to look at whatever we are faced with and find something of benefit to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And if the benefit is that what you've gone through will help someone else, then maybe that is your purpose. But I think we all have a role that we play and a purpose here. It's just whether you want to to do it or not. Um, it's just unfortunate that it's so hard for some people, but for those who might not have any challenges, they may view their life just as hard as the person who's actually suffered, you know, objectively difficult
0: lives. Mm-hmm. That's a that's, long way of saying. No, <laughs> I think that's true. I I remember um, after Ethan passed, when we came home, it was the summer and my son Blake played soccer and Eric coached soccer. And I remember Eric and I would get in the car after every soccer game and we would like, there were, I mean, hundreds of kids out playing soccer on whatever <laughs> night it was. And we're like all those healthy hearts running around at one point just running and playing. Like I was in awe of that, the, the, the quantity of healthy children, which I know to those parents, they were just annoyed by the fact that they had to get out the door on time and you know, whatever they were, were rushing around. But like, I had that awareness of the gift of, I mean, I still, sometimes my son Blake is now a teenager and he runs track and cross country and he's really good at it. And we all, I mean, he will say, what a gift it is to have healthy lungs and a heart. And, and, and like, he's aware of that. And so I think, um, I think you're right. I think it's a short life. And I think that when we get to one of the gifts of having challenges, like whatever it is in your life is if you can harness that, you get to see like the spark of life that Mm -hmm. I think many people don't get to see. And I get annoyed too, with the parents at the practice that are like, where are we going for spring break? And oh, I really wanted this and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know what? None of that really matters. Um, it matters to have like you said before, to have joy and to then and then to have your priorities like in alignment. So I'm wondering, like, does this eke over into like, you know, your husband's a physician? Mm-hmm. And so you share that, how you all like think about your life and your priorities with everything that you do. I'm sure your time, your resources, like does this impact how you live, like as people outside the hospital? Yeah. So, you
1: know, even even though my husband works as a pediatric cardiologist in the same department, um, we love each other excessively and he's my best friend. And we actually spend the most amount of time at work um, because Mm. when we get home, you know, our kids want all of the attention. And so even my six-year-old son, He sometimes questions, he's like, are you really married to dad? I said, yes. He's like, so you can't marry me? I say, no, 100%, (laughs) I can't. So he doesn't even want Jesse to speak to me because he wants like all mommy time. So, you know, we we eat lunch at work together. We talk about our kids when we're at work. And when we're at home, we try not to talk about work. Um, But to us, it's not really work. So there's not like what I'd call a work-life balance. It's just life. Mm -hmm. Our kids hear about the patients at the hospital and I tell them, you know, so-and-so is not doing well. I want you to say a little prayer tonight for so-and-so so Mm -hmm. "So that they know that their world involves us. And when we disappear from their world, they know where we're going to. Mm -hmm. Um, And pre-pandemic, I used to bring my son to the hospital all the time and he would play with the kids um, who were here and... The kids got great OTPT um, with a the kid their age, and he got the time and experience to see like what is out in the world. Um, and I think in doing that, they have been so accommodating to sharing me with all of the other patients and families. So, you know, if in during supper, I get texted or paged or something, there's not this big, oh, mom's going off to the phone. It's as though I'm talking to their brother or sister. Mm -hmm. Um, And they view it in that same, that same way. Um, We, because of, because I'm on call a lot, or because I field calls all the time, I feel like if I'm going to be available all the time, then I also have the opportunity to not physically be in the hospital. And I think the pandemic has really enlightened everyone that Physically being somewhere doesn't necessarily mean you are working um, Mm -hmm. and you can still be working if you're not physically at that location. So, you know, I will leave early to go pick up my son or daughter if that's what is really important to them, not because I have to, but because I want to. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also know that two hours later I might have to go back and that's okay. And so we just kind of blend it all together so that it's not this mummy's going away for X number of hours today to some nebulous place we've never seen. Um, and that's why my office looks like this because a lot of the times they're sitting here in the office while I'm away doing something else. And you just kind of integrate the two together and then you don't necessarily have to figure out ways of balancing the two. It's just walking one tightrope <laughs> rather than trying to balance on two.
0: Yeah. That's really cool. I like, I think that also gives your kids a beautiful perspective of life, you know, and it's very, again, another way that I think you're very honest, because it would be easy to want to shield your kids maybe from the reality of what your patients are facing, but integrating them, I think is, is, is beautiful and I think will benefit them, you know, and as they grow up, I remember, you know, all the things that you said today, just when, um, Ethan would always like, when he would walk around the ICU, he'd be like, I'm going to go check on my kids. And Mm -hmm. with his friends, he'd at home, he'd call them my, my, my friends or, you know, he, they were always his. And I, I think one of the things he taught me is like that, that kind of like we belong to each other. And I think that you have so beautifully demonstrated that, you know, our kids belong to us as a society, as a culture. And that, um, and I feel like that, a lot of times in the work that I do that you know what can, these are these children are also my responsibility in some way because mm-hmm. um, I think that when we can think that way we can really like use our gifts whatever they are to really impact generations you know mm-hmm. for for good and so I just want to thank you for all beautiful work that you do. I want to ask you like one, I like to close out kind of with with the question that I ask all of my guests. Um, and But I, before I do that, I have one other question for you. You know, what what do your, I mean, you said so many things, but what do your patients teach you the most in the families? Like something that you maybe didn't expect as when you first started out being a physician, like, is there something that they have that they give to you that um, you never thought maybe that they would? Oh, it's, there's
1: so many, so many things that they've taught me over the years. And, and I think this, this, this single kind of thread throughout all of it is that there is a strength that we don't know, that we don't appreciate you have mm-hmm. until it's really kind of pushed to the limit. Um, And kids have this strength too, you know. I have seen kids at the end of their physical life here tell their parents, um, "It's okay, you know, I'm dying, but I'll see you in a little bit," and and they know more about you know what's going on potentially than we do. do, and that so much of our lives. is spent trying to like live, 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 and get to the next, you know, the next amazing thing. Um, But that there's nothing bad about dying other than the people who are left here wanted more time. We wanted more time to have that life. And so, you know, we spend so much time thinking about living that we don't really think about how can we actually make dying as beautiful as living? Um, and you know, my children will ask like, well, mommy, I never want you to die when you get older. Cause you know, we'll say, why does people die? And you'll say, you're oh, getting older. And then they'll hear me saying, oh, I'm getting so older. And my <laughs> son will be like, "Why well, don't want you to die. I'm like, I'm not dying. Mm-hmm. But then we talk a lot about dying. And I said, you know, we watched the movie Coco and I said, you know, what does that look like? And they say, "Oh, that looks amazing. I'm excited for when that happens. And I said, you know, obviously I don't want my children to be wanting to die, right. but I also don't want this, this construct so that they're constantly in fear Mm. of something that is an eventuality for all of us. And, you know, there are some cultures and some religions that, you know, speak so fondly of death and what happens afterwards. And I've seen that the families that come with, with, from those backgrounds Mm -hmm. have a completely different approach to the entire experience. And I had, you know, one, one mother, um, with her son, Tommy and, We knew that Tommy was dying um, and she was not at all sad. She kept telling Mm. me, she's like, I don't know why people are so sad about this. She's like, I'm going to see him again. It's just going to be in a little bit, but I'm going to see him again. And it completely changed, you know, the last, what we thought was days, but ended up being months with him. And that it was kind of a joyous occasion. Every day was a celebration. We didn't know Mm. if it was going to be the last one. And instead of it being a dark, quiet room where, you know, people kind of scurried, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, to to avoid, everybody wanted to be part of this. And we did so many things. And so much happiness was derived from a time what we would generally associate with sadness. Mm -hmm. And it completely changed how I thought I would be if my child was ever going to die, that I said, you know what, I'm just going to assume I'm going to see them in a little bit. Mm -hmm. And whether that little bit is five years, 10 years, 50 years down the line, I'll see them at some point. And maybe it'll be in heaven. Maybe we'll just be two little globs of energy somewhere <laughs> in the universe, but that our little electrons and protons will somehow meld together somewhere in this universe. And we'll, we're all still here. Energy doesn't disappear. It stays around. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we say they're all around us, it's
0: true. They are. It's true. Yeah, it's just a different, I mean, I, I think it's just a different form, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's just a different form. And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, I I, I say this to people, I've never really said it on, the, on my podcast, but some. I mean, death isn't the worst thing. And um, I, that's a hard thing for people to hear, um, but it's not because, you know, like Ethan lived with so much love and we still love him and you know I believe that he's still with us there are countless stories I could have in a podcast of things that have happened and I know so many other families too um and so it's not the worst thing I just feel like he's just in a different form but he's still with me of course you long for that person I mean that is human um but there are these ways that we can have these relationships. And I think that that is, when you have that perspective, it can change everything about the way that you live, which you've shared with us so beautifully today. So I just, I have one final question for you um, that I ask all my guests, as I mentioned, but I'm curious what tool or piece of advice has served you the best in becoming who you are today? All
1: right. Um, I would say... So I think in my career, um, it has been the feeling that and this was a a quote from Grace Hopper, um, who is a general, and she said that the most dangerous phrase in the English language is it's always been done this way. Um, Um, And so when I first came to Boston, um, I bristled when people would say, well, we we always do it this way because it immediately made me think, well, there has to be a better way. Um, And so I think that's what served me the most in pushing the field as much forward as possible and getting others to constantly question the way we do things because there's always a better way. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that I think in my life and my career is, um, and this is another uh, quote, uh, I think it's by Henry Truman, who said, it's amazing what can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. Um, And I think that works in relationships and in your career, that if you're constantly thinking about like, oh, if I publish this and if this person knows and, you know, I'm going to go see this patient so that that mom knows that I came to see them um, and you're constantly looking to get some sort of recognition for just showing up, um, it's exhausting. And you can't actually keep going in life. And same thing in that's a marriage, true. if you're constantly tallying up in your head, well, I trust the kids today and I, and I did this and I did this and I did this and nobody said great job. Um, but if everybody came at it with the same mentality, um, it's amazing what we would be able to get done. Yeah. But still so much of it is is predicated on, well, I'm not going to do it if that person doesn't say great job. Mm. So I think for, for my career, that's really what's focused me the most. But I think a lot of it was just, you know, my mom and dad instilled that you have to be kind and nice to everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's just very simple that you don't know if somebody else's day is worse than yours and assume it is so that assume everybody at baseline is kind, but whatever they're experiencing right now is worse than what you're experiencing. So approach it with kindness.
0: That's beautiful. It's a great way to end. Christina, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insight and your stories with us. Um, I think people are going to learn so much from you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me here on the HeartStrong Podcast. Please rate and review this podcast and share an episode that you love with a friend. And when you do, it helps us continue our mission of encouraging people to grow through the challenges in their lives. This podcast is brought to you by the Ethan Lindbergh Foundation and the HeartStrong Collective. To learn more about our work, please visit theheartstrong.com. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the HeartStrong Podcast.